Hello, I'm Max Cohen. And I'm Liz Ryerson. And welcome back to Kitchfork, an anti-nostalgic look back at Pitchfork and the indie music and culture of the early aughts. Well, not just the early aughts, but right now... Of we're... the aughts, of the aughts yes. generally. Uh, we'll get there. So today, we're taking a look back at the classic band that will change your life, The Shins' first album, uh, Oh, Inverted World. I think I'll So we're talking about O Inverted World from 2001. Goodness. Famous for the Garden State feature of the song <laughs> New Slang, which we'll talk about because the Shin's legacy is very much defined weirdly by that one song. I think Caring, Caring is Creepy was on there too, but New Slang was the one that hit. Yes. New Slang is the song that drove a million uh, indie engines for some reason. It's so weird. It's so weird. We'll get to it, but it's so weird because like by the time Garden State came out, the Shins had already put out their like second album. Like we were like way beyond O Inverted World, and then suddenly it's a thing again. So, what is your background with the Shins? Because I have probably a more significant background than you, but I am curious. Almost certainly, yeah. I mean, I you know I just I heard the hype uh, when O Inverted World came out. You know, it was the first time like Sub Pop had released a notable record in a while. Uh, I guess unless you're really into the Dwarves. So iTunes would do this thing where they would get musicians to make little like lists of songs like little playlists for itunes where you could go in and buy the songs mm -hmm. and isaac brock did one that had um one by one all day on it and i think i initially thought that was the only song i'd ever heard i found out re-listening to it for this podcast that i had in fact listened to the entire album before and completely forgot it oh you know at the time i was like an edgy post-punk kid and i thought that like the sort of like power pop stuff was boring you know like the super chunks and the the new pornographers of the world I was like this mm -hmm. is normal and boring like i'm too cool for this um so i never really followed it up yeah until for this episode wow okay that's interesting yeah the shins like so i'm the one who suggested this episode like i said it in the previous episode we sort of had four albums that we started with right that are all kind of like define the beginning of this era mm -hmm. in kind of a subjective sense but you know these four are all critically acclaimed albums and this is the album that comes up to me like first because of a lot of reasons i think well one <laughs> the most obvious personal reason is The Shins is the first band that I saw live. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Yes. It's such a weird, arbitrary thing because they're not one of my favorite bands. I do like them, mm -hmm. but they're not like, you know, there were so many uh, artists that I really, really liked, like Radiohead, The Flaming Lips and stuff, who I still have never seen live. <laughs> but for some reason, I saw The Shins. I guess it just felt more accessible. But yeah, I was introduced to The Shins through Pitchfork Best New Music, which is 100% why I associate it with the whole Kitchfork thing and all that. Like, Pitchfork started doing Best New Music in 2003, and I think I really started following Pitchfork then because I have an older brother 
uh, he introduced me to a lot of like indie music and he had gone to college. So I think it was like my first, like starting to form my own tastes and, you know, and so I was heavily like, you know, I was looking online and trying to find, you know, uh, music publications and what they recommended. And of course, Pitchfork had uh, just so good SEO, like the, the best SEO. <laughs> so they would come up like first on every fucking search engine, at least from yeah, my experience. True. No, for sure. It was, it was, you could be convinced they were the only music blog in town. Yeah. And I didn't know any better. So I'm like, okay, I'll f- find this website. And they had just started doing best new music in 2003. And like one of the first albums that came up, uh, was shoots too narrow by the shins, which is their second album from 2003. Right. And I had, I downloaded a song from there and a few others. And I just happened to download what is probably their best song, uh, which is, uh, St. Simon from, from shoots too narrow. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was so into that song. And then so I downloaded uh, Know Your Onion from this one. And again, that's like probably my second favorite Shin song. <laughs> so I, I think I just chose well for my like file sharing downloads. Right. And so I eventually bought Shoots Too Narrow. And then I saw them live at the Newport Music Hall in Columbus, Ohio, where the band Rogue Wave was opening for them. Which oh, my is, God. What a bill. Yeah. <laughs> what a bill. Yeah. And they had another band called The Glands, which I I don't even remember what they sounded like, but I remember being like, oh, this isn't very good. <laughs> but I was like 16 or 17, and I went with my brother, and it was like over the summer, and I remember we had like a weird fight, and I was I think I was really anxious, and, and I could tell he was like, uh, didn't want me like ruining his coolness. Um, right. you know, it was that type of thing. And I remember like, we didn't talk on the car ride over. We just listened to the guided by voices album under the bushes, under the stars. And, um, I don't remember much about the show other than it being okay. And they didn't play one of the songs that I liked. Um, but it was fine. You know, it was basically fine, but yeah, they will forever be the first band that I officially saw live, uh, which is kind of crazy. That's incredible. I like. I love that you brought up under the bushes, under the stars too, because I feel like that's a good, going to be a good comparison later on, especially in terms of like production. <laughs> um, yeah, but yes, I think the reason that I think of O Inverted World is I the review from Pitchfork mentioned O Inverted World as this kind of hype thing, and this was a year before the Garden State soundtrack came out, so they they were already had gotten a lot of acclaim, but yeah. uh, this was before you know that happened. And they were quite popular already. Like they had sold quite a bit, but yeah, like you said, they were signed to sub pop records. Um, and like the background with them is basically James Mercer, who's like the main songwriter and basically, you know, the one in charge. Right. He, uh, was part of this band called flake, uh, also known as flake music, which was like a hundred percent, a power pop band, a hundred percent, like super chunk style built to spill style music. You can find some of their music online, but it is extremely nineties indie sounding. It's exactly what you would expect. But yeah, they were a local band in Albuquerque and like James Mercer apparently was like a military brat. Like his dad was in the Air Force. They moved around a lot, but then like eventually ended up in Albuquerque. So he's kind of like an antisocial introverted guy and i think that very much plays into you know uh the kind of music and lyrics that he writes <laughs> it's it's funny 
you know, even though I didn't listen to the Shins a lot, I was always reading about them because they were like, before Garden State, they were beloved by music journalists. And I remember reading interviews with James Mercer where he just sounded so miserable to be there (laughs) and like so like unhappy to be talking to another person, like just the most anxious little delicate guy, just very afraid to have any attention at all. Yes. Well, I think that's kind of a personality that like uh, really meshes with indie music in general, (laughs) especially like, you know, singer songwriter types who are doing things that are very like deep and emotional or, you know, that that just kind of like archetype. From what I read, he was pretty antisocial or like, you know, he wasn't very much part of the scene in Albuquerque and he felt very disconnected. And I think he was... uh, not very pleased with the direction like the band was going in. I, I, I feel like he maybe felt like the the way that the band operated was not like friendly to the kind of songwriting that he wanted to do. I mean, it sounded like another Yankee Hotel thing where he didn't like collaborating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so he ended up uh, just like isolating himself apparently. And he got a computer. It was just like a like HP desktop computer you know, that wasn't like very high end. The old a, cow print ones. Yes. And apparently had a bootleg version of Cool Edit. I don't know if you remember Cool Edit, the software. Mm-hmm. That was the hotness mm-hmm. for a brief period of time. And yeah, he just learned how to record with that. This like computer with this pirated version of Cool Edit that someone gave him. And like he did that for a while. And then I think New Slang is actually the first song that was recorded uh, as part of this project. Oh, wow. Okay. So he had, like, their band had toured with Isaac Brock uh, from Modest Mouse and also from with this other band called Love is Laughter. Mm-hmm. I remember them. Which, yeah, it was another indie band at the time. And they got the ear of, you know, somebody at Sub Pop Records. By the way, I'm recording in Seattle, the <laughs> the home base of, of, of Sub Pop Records. Yeah, if I'll we post have a- it on social media, but I took a selfie yeah. <laughs> and there's a Sub Pop store at the Seattle airport. And I, I took a selfie in front of it because I thought it was the funniest thing. Almost certainly because of the shins. Yeah. <laughs> this is the lasting impact. Yeah. So Sub Pop was a big label in the 90s. They were, uh, they released a Nirvana's first album famously, but they were kind of like an indie label and they were kind of part of the Seattle scene right before it blew up. So they released Nirvana and also Mud Honey, you know, who was like, people thought Mud Honey was going to be Nirvana before Nirvana happened. Right. But then after that, like for most of the rest of the 90s, they were pretty under the radar. You know, they put out like what? Like Earth? Uh, Sebado, some st- Sebado stuff. There's some Sebado stuff. The Spinanes, like. Nothing <laughs> that's, yeah, nothing that sold like super well, especially towards mm-hmm. the end of the 90s. They actually got bought. Uh, they didn't get fully bought out, but they are 49% owned by Warner Brothers, which is of course. It's so funny because we were just talking about it. It all comes back to Warner yeah. <laughs> They also are part of something called the Merlin Music Group, which is like a lot of independent labels are, so which kind of operates basically as a major label. So even though they're technically majority owned by you know whoever started it still i think um, jonathan poneman still yeah so the dude from sub pop uh i i forget i think it's jonathan it's jonathan poneman okay jonathan poneman he heard them perform and basically had a deal to specifically release just one song like a single for new slang again so it it all comes back to new slang <laughs> And like the the their sing- that single sort of started getting hype like buzz around it at the time, and because of that, because it was like one of the first things you know that was really getting buzz 
uh, they commissioned like Owen oh, Ver- the you know the the full album, which uh, James Mercer was kind of in the middle of writing and recording, and then yeah, so it was eventually released. And I think they expected it to sell about uh, 10,000 copies or something like that. And it ended up selling like 100,000 copies. It hit such a nerve. I mean, I was talking about this and we'll, we'll really get into it later, but it feels like really similar to, um, you know, the Strokes' first album where it's these albums that feel like really unassuming that got huge, like unreasonably huge in the indie world yeah i think the difference is the strokes had like connections right yeah they did whereas this is just like a guy it's just a guy making just guy songs <laughs> you know which i i really i think it was kind of the indie culture of the 90s so he's kind of like part of that archetype of the 90s just this kind of loner guy you know it's a real smog type yeah. yeah. Makes me think of Built to Spill or something like that. Sure. But I think the difference between the 90s and the 2000s that we really see is that, like, you know, a lot of 90s music, if you hear, like, like early 90s especially, like Sebado or Guided by Voices, stuff that's, or, or early pavement, it's all self-recorded, and it's, you know, it's rough sounding. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that's part of the texture of the music. But by the time the early 2000s hit, like, there's a tremendous jump in, like, uh, access to audio software and people started using computers more like a, the kind of whole uh software kind of ecosystem the way people record music now digitally really started at the end of the 90s and it started to become consumer accessible around that point which creates kind of an interesting version of mid-fi where the recording quality is a lot better but the mixing still really bad <laughs> yeah um which like again becomes like like how lo-fi how tape has became its own sound. To me, it feels like kind of its own sound of like indie in that era of like, you know, yeah, the recordings are clean, you know, but uh, you know, the vocals are buried and the snare doesn't pop, and it's just it's it's mixed in a way that feels kind of hollow and weird. Yeah, so it's self-produced and you know mixed by someone who doesn't quite know what they're doing, right. but obviously it sounds better because they cool edit is kind of like. A commercial version of like you know like what Garage Band or Audacity. It was also like professionally mastered, I believe, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, they did. I think they did have the album professionally mastered, but yeah. So I mean, and that's like going back to the whole indie as DIY thing. Like this album was legitimately DIY. They right. used pirated software on like a computer. The funniest thing about this to me is that the original master tapes. Well, they call them the master tapes, but they're not. I mean, you know, the the digital files, the original digital files were stolen and are gone now because um, after the success of this album, he bought it. He moved to Portland. Mm -hmm. Like he bought a house in Portland, but it was like right next to like a meth house. Uh, Of course. yeah. And like they they got arrested. And so they thought that he like ratted them out. So they stole his computer (laughs) with all the like original audio files on. So I think the only like original mix that he had was of new slang again. That's amazing. Why is, why this one song? Yeah. I don't really understand why this one song. Well, and the other thing about New Slang is part of the. Re- so this this album got a lot of hype. It got good reviews. It's the Pitchfork review is like mutedly positive. They, but they it's, gave it's it an because, eight point. It's because they're responding to the hype, right? Yeah. Which is one of Pitchfork's thing is to be like, you know, slightly contrarian. Like, if something was big in the music world, they wanted to take it down a peg. Yeah, exactly. But of course, they put their weight uh, eventually a little more behind Shoots Too Narrow, mm-hmm. but. Because of that, they also got uh, an opportunity to uh, uh, 
Uh, so there's an article. This is in the, the Seattle Times. It says, the shins get a bite from McDonald's. And here's what it says. Okay. McShins, mm. if you were heartbroken over the likes of the Dandy Warhols and Badly Drawn Boy music and Gap commercials and Nick Drake and Groove Armada over car ads, don't read on. <laughs> The Shins, the New Mexico indie pop band that leads the new wave of sub pop bands, has its catchy new slang tune being used in some McDonald's spots during the Olympics. That's right, McDonald's. And apparently, as a poster on the pitchforkmedia.com message board put it, I was watching the Olympics and I just heard new slang by Shins in a fucking McDonald's commercial. So Sean Rogers, creative director of film and television for Sub Pop, says that when the Burger Giants ad agency contacted the Seattle label, initially it kind of freaked everyone out. Why the hell have they heard of the shins? Um, When Sub Pop contacted the band about the offer, it wasn't a hard sell, according to Rogers. They were like, well, we don't really think this is compromising. Somebody wants us to pay to do what we do. So uh, they don't disclose how much the band was paid, but it was between anywhere from $10,000 to $150,000. And I think that's why he was able to buy a house in, um, <laughs> in, in Portland. Um, and uh, also it was in Scrubs. Uh, so before, Even- so I guess Zach Braff was a fan. Even before Garden State, yeah. Big supporter, Zach Braff. Yeah, it's, it's funny to think about like that. There was an era in like that, like two or three year period from around, you know, the year 2000 where like, a lot of indie or like hipster songs are getting played in commercials. You know, I remember like Modest Mouse getting played in a Volvo commercial or something. Yeah, but it was like still early enough to where people frowned upon it. Like they mm-hmm. thought, you know, the idea of selling out, which is just so funny because like the YouTuber Todd in the Shadows, actually, who's like a pop music YouTuber, right. talks about this on one of his videos about what he calls like indie rock music be- essentially becoming like advertising core. Like, mm-hmm. One example I can think of is, uh, I think it's the band Portugal, The Man. Have you, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they had a song called, um, was it, I think it's called Feel It Still or something. It's like, it's the one that goes like, I'm a rebel just for kicks now. Oh, I And that was in like a, a thousand million commercials. I didn't know that was Portugal, The Man. <laughs> okay. Um, but yeah, there are a lot of bands that are like ostensibly indie rock that it doesn't really mean anything. And it's just basically like fodder for commercials. And I think- That starts here. <laughs> Yeah, I think the 2000s core is the kind of what directly leads into indie rock being commercial, you know, fodder for Apple ads and all that kind yeah, of stuff. It starts with buying vinyl from Urban Outfitters and it ends with Portugal the man. <laughs> As everything does. Uh. Haven, a breath of fresh air but yeah so inverted world came out it's definitely critically successful but you know honestly even more commercially successful and we can sort of talk about why we think it was commercially successful because like especially compared to pretty much all the other artists that we're going to talk about in the first four episodes this is not i mean it's still a well-regarded album but not to the extent that like something like yankee hotel foxtrot is right like, I, I looked on Rate Your Music and, you know, as a barometer, which is not a, a great barometer. There's weird subcultures on Rate Your Music that I, that don't make any sense to me. But uh, this was, like, you know, the, the praise, the score for this album and how it ranks is, like, m- much more muted than, than something like Yankee Hotel Foxtrot or uh, something like that. So I'd, I have a feeling that the 
the shins haven't exactly had the same staying power, but at the same time, this kind of music feels like it's coming back into vogue a little bit. So maybe they they will have uh, a redemption arc. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a degree to which, like you were talking about, seeing them win the show with Rogue Wave, and I think that's funny because both of them feel tidally locked to that era in a way that Yankee Hotel Foxtrot does not, and it's not because they sound dated. But it's because I can't think of any other era except for maybe fairly recently where this kind of album would get as big as it did. Mm -hmm. Because it's both exceedingly unassuming and exceedingly weird in a way that, you know, we'll get into later. But it's like, it's not like conventional pop songs. You know, there aren't a lot of songs here I would call like catchy. I think No Your Onion is pretty catchy. I, I think there's hooks and stuff, but it's not like, you know, it's not. One of the things we'll get into later is that these songs are very weirdly constructed in a way that like mm-hmm. kind of defies repetition or expectation in a way that I don't like associate with indie bands that got big at the time or got big generally. But at the time, it seems like it was getting fairly big, like because you, you got this, you got the new pornographers. Eventually, you get stuff like Wolf Parade with these kind of um, or like Arcade Fire with these very like elaborate versions of pop songs. Yes. Um, yeah. Aesthetically different, but like construction wise the same. And I think it was just like the right time. Makes me think of like the Decemberists. Yeah, also the Decemberists for, really has for sure. Okay. So there was a, this album had its 20th anniversary last year and there was like a real release. So they interviewed uh, James Mercer, who by the way, looks exactly the same that he, as he did like 20 years know, ago. It's so weird. He was born old. Yeah. <laughs> He was born a middle-aged, bearded, nervous guy. Yeah. So he's uh, James Morris is talking about flake music, and he calls it very 90s. And um, uh, the interviewer says, that's interesting that you described flake as very 90s because I in turn think of The Shins, especially as this album is very 2000s. Again, I, I think part of the reason why this comes up for me as kind of the beginning of that era. But anyway, I'll continue to read the interview. It says, it's the sound of millennial, the millennial indie rock that I grew up listening to as I was going through school and learning about what good music was. To what degree do you feel like you guys were trendsetters and what degree do you feel like your personal interests, like listening to oldies radio, happen to be in sync with this emerging zeitgeist? Uh, so yeah, the other thing that he mentions in this interview is that he was listening to like oldies, like 60s radio a lot. Mm-hmm. And I, you can... Definitely hear that kind of songwriting influence. There's a bit of that Braille building, like Steely Dan kind of yes, complexity. Totally. For sure. But yeah, what James says is certainly there was no intent to create some sort of trend or anything. So much of life, I think, is just slapdash. But I do see what it was doing. It was a little bit of a departure from what was really popular in the 90s, and it happened to be successful. There was a zeitgeist thing there because I think other bands were feeling the same thing. I think there was this craving for some earnestness. So it's kind of like this like new sincerity <laughs> <laughs> we see that in the Arcade Fire review, like, right. I, I guess we'll get to that, but, like, the um, Pitchfork review. It was such a big thing, though. Yeah, it's like, like, this band is so earnest, like, we, you know. We're sick of irony now. We're burning yeah. the David Foster Wallace posters. And exactly, because in, in this interview, it's like, the 90s were the decade of irony, right? And he said, yeah, that's what it was. I think everything was kind of tongue-in-cheek the whole time, which was fun and cool, but I think there was this longing for something that I experienced back in the 80s with bands like the Smiths. You can really tell the Smiths' influence if you look at the lyrics in particular. Yeah. Yeah, there's a... Yep. But yeah, I can also see it like... I, I mentioned Bell and Sebastian. I really think that's a good comparison point as well. There, Yeah, it's it's not like they're without precedent, right? You know, there's some like like early Mitski albums or the Spinet... Like any power pop, like early built to spill. Um, 
there's a bit of R.E.M. There's a bit of the Smiths. Like there's precedent for the shins for different parts of the shins. There is a combination the shins represents that feels extremely 2000s or extremely like Mm -hmm. unique to this album. Well, I think it's also indie. I mean, this album is genuinely DIY sub pop. You can argue is not necessarily an indie label. I mean, technically sort of is, but it represents like indie becoming an aesthetic more than, you know, because like if you listen to B thousand or something or slanted and enchanted, like obviously this is an independent artist. They wouldn't make something that sounds mainstream, but this is kind of having like a slight overlap with the mainstream in a way that it wasn't really quite before then. So it's part of the gentrification of, of indie music. It absolutely is. And it was something that I remember this is going to be a this is a wider thing maybe for later, but I remember reading a a whole feature on Sub Pop at the time where it was like this is what this was always Jonathan Poneman's goal. The other co-founder of Sub Pop left because it was getting too corporate. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Uh, I, I mean, that makes sense because they you know uh, you sold to Warner's Warner. Yeah, yeah <laughs> Warner owns forty nine percent of them. So I mean, and that's so they have more distribution and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, apparently they were not very. They were not doing great in the late 90s. So this is kind of... But this album, I feel like, kickstarted Sub Pop again as a, as a legit brand. Absolutely, it did. Like, after this, people were paying attention to what Sub Pop was putting out in a way that, like, before they were... And again, even before Garden State, I think the diff- what Garden State did was, like, it took the chance from being a band that all the journalists were talking about to a band that my high school friends were talking about. Yeah, no, somebody that from high school I know was like, oh yeah, I love Young Pilgrims. I think that was one of the songs from the mm-hmm. next album. But yeah, it was like people that I didn't normally expect had had heard of it around that time, like when Garden State. It was that seismic a shift. It was it was kind of wild, which again is, is weird for the kind of album that it is. Yeah. Well, speaking of that, do you want to finally get into talking about the album now? Yeah, I would love to. Okay. Because here's the thing. I don't like this album, (laughs) but I find this album, like the reasons I don't like it and what it does really well, I find extremely fascinating. Like this is an album that got me to like really inquire into my own taste and what what music is for me. Yeah, that's interesting. (laughs) In a really wild way. It is funny because for me, I, I don't have, I didn't listen to this album a lot back in the day, but I did listen to various songs i do generally like this album and i think it's something that is the appeal is opposite of something like yankee hotel foxtrot to me where i can just sort of listen to any song from this album kind of ambiently and it just has a a generally pleasant vibe for me whereas it's not like a challenging difficult listen but it just like hasn't really gotten old for me Mm -hmm. but then I will say, I looked up the lyrics last night. There's a, somebody on Reddit like posted official lyrics, and uh, <laughs> I don't know. Like some of them are good, but some of them are just like make me roll my fucking eyes. Like it's not. Uh, I mean, it makes me think of the first time I saw like Radiohead lyrics. Right, where like before when I couldn't quite understand them, I thought, "Wow, this is probably profound." <laughs> Um, and then when I read them, I'm like, no, this is kind of silly. But Radiohead kind of <laughs> gets to a point, you know, uh, whereas these are kind of overly flowery and flirt. Like it's, it feels like he's trying to do like a Morrissey thing, but it, Morrissey always has kind of a better delivery and sense of humor than. Right. Not, not you know, it pains me to, to praise Morrissey, but yeah, yeah. Morrissey leans Famously into great human being right. Morrissey. But Morrissey leans into that like decadence in a way that like. I can buy Morrissey calling himself a worthless drag, 
I can't buy this guy doing it. It's like, uh, I feel bad saying this, but you know, like, uh, Morrissey is like asexual. I, I don't know what Morrissey's sexuality is. I won't speculate, but the, the He's dude, some kind of ace gay. Yeah. <laughs> the dude from Bell and Sebastian is definitely gay. And so gay. there's this, uh, element of camp and a little sense of humor to it, uh, that again, feels similar but uh, it feels a little bit more pointed and and cutting if you listen to you know some Bell and Sebastian lyrics. Whereas like the Shins, it's like kind of like a a shy straight guy trying to do that. Right. They, he doesn't see the humor in it. It it feels like there's no self awareness. Yeah. So like half the and there's kind of like a like you can tell that there's a lot of anger, but he's expressing it and trying to be like this authorial way. And like a lot of the songs just end up being about. What is like seems like a really kind of bad codependent uh, relationship or romantic <laughs> stuff, but is like not really written in that way. Yeah, it's the, it's the Smiths again. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, so what get gets me about the album is, and and this is like kind of I think a personal issue with how I comprehend songs. It's that there's so many chords and they're doing so many weird things with them. So for there was a very brief period of my life where I was playing bass in a band called Sad Thirteen, mm-hmm. which is um City Dupuis from Speedy Ortiz's like solo project, and I had the hardest time learning those bass lines because Sadie's a fairly like Byzantine songwriter, and none of the chords progressed the way I expected them to, and so my mind couldn't hold on to it. You know, a lot of music you like get a groove. You it's a lot, a lot about expectation and resolve, and you can kind of pick up on the patterns. And my brain just could not pick up on the patterns of those songs. I mean, it, it makes sense. I think uh, there's an interesting thing about, uh, you know, I made this bizarre tweet that we were kind of uh, semi-arguing <laughs> right. about, about how, like, I think that songwriting is the level design of, of, of music. I'm not even sure how much I agree with my own statement, but... Um, it's fun to think about. <laughs> yeah, because I think, like, the songwriting and melodies in this, which is kind of the low to mid-level kind of part of music there's a there's a workmanship a workman like uh aspect to it that is really impressive but it's kind of like a low level thing and you, you think of the direction that music has gone in the last 10 years especially it's become very production focused and arrangement right. focused and it already was going that way in the 2000s so this is kind of hitting a nostalgia cycle of the kind of songwriting that you would hear in the 60s in particular and the right. 70s as well um, it makes me think of the Kinks, especially like the um, like Village Green and Arthur era, which are like my least favorite Kinks albums, which maybe explains oh. something of me. Oh, I lo- I love those albums. I, I like Village Green. I-, I I have some issues with Arthur, but like, but yeah, th- those Kinks songs have like a billion chord changes, and they they change in very unexpected ways. And there's this kind of like old. It it was even kind of a little old timey at the time, like that kind of songwriting even in the 60s but i i think the songwriting really harkens back to that yeah well it's funny because it's not like i generally dislike unconventional songwriting you know i really like you know liz fair the breeders are like sunset rubbed out. i eventually learned those bass lines like i you know i enjoy it i think what gets me here and this was coming to me as i was walking today is that it's an unconventional songwriting style combined with a very conventional sonic palette mm-hmm which like the combination of those turns into like mercury in my hands. Like there's nothing for me to hold on to. It's the same reason I have a hard time with, with Steely Dan. Although I think I get the shins in a way I don't get Steely Dan. Yeah. Steel- 
I don't, we, we don't have to talk about Steely Dan. No, we don't. But it's like, but like Power Pop is such a uh, a bare bones kind of aesthetic. Yeah, I don't even because like uh, he said, their early early flake music. They were really trying to do a super chunk thing, which you know, super chunk is a is a kind of prototypical power pop type, right? Like heavier '90s version of power pop kind of band. But I I don't think he's quite trying to do that. I think he's trying to go in a direction that is defined more by the songwriting and is is a little more soft and not heavy i think i read like an interview where he said a lot of the music that was happening in albuquerque was very like heavy and i i guess that's kind of goes with the like around that time you know new metal and that stuff was like a very mainstream aesthetic and it was very masculine and very like overly performed so this is kind of like the opposite you know end of that uh, but it also kind of goes into the like whole indie is twee soft boy type uh, a thing that, it, that that this really well fits into. It for sure, yeah, it does. And I, I think it kind of for me the songs that I liked the most were either like weirder on a sonic aesthetic level, so like "Caring Is Creepy" I really like because it's like a it's a it's a divergent sound for the album, mm-hmm. or it's like. Girl on the Wing, where it's very straightforward songwriting wise. Oh, I don't like that song, but we can get to it. I think it's fine not to like it, but you know, you can't argue it's not straightforward. That's true. <laughs> what are you listening to? The Shins. You know them? No. You gotta hear this one song. It'll change your life, I swear. Oh, I'm sorry. You have to. Uh, you gotta fill out your forms. Conundrum. Think you could uh, maybe listen yeah, while I think you could? I can handle it. Yeah. So let's start with Carrying is Creepy. So that, like, honestly, Carrying is Creepy was another one that was on soundtracks. Before I saw, like, the memes about the Garden State, uh, Natalie Portman, you know, this music will change your life mm-hmm. scene, which, of course, New Slang is famous for. For some reason, I thought Carrying is Creepy was the song that she played. Because it makes more sense to me, because the song is a little bit more dynamic. And, like, yeah. I can... There's a little bit more interesting things going on with the production there's some kind of organ like whooshing sound happening throughout and there's like the whistling well, echoed like whistling sound right at the beginning there's a, there, the, the drums are a lot more tom heavy in a cool way there's this very like modest mousy kind of bass line it feels like less classical in its aesthetics mm-hmm. uh, and in its directions in a way that like and, and the, the vocals are like more kind of like what you would think of as emotionally pitched like there's a lot of yelps and dynamic swings yeah it's funny because i like looking back at the lyrics of like the the things that were basically the singles or you could call the singles which are carrying us creepy know your onion and new slang those are the songs that are the least about like romantic stuff and the most about just being totally restless and kind of hating your life and thinking like oh this (laughs) this songwriting is going to be my way out because if you look at at some of the lyrics, especially we'll talk about it with Know Your Onion. They're kind of about that of just being like, I don't like being here. Um, right. This is like, I'm trying to make this thing my way out because I feel like this is a go nowhere town where I don't get along with anyone. And yeah, it's like, it's a more poetic kind of version of that. But that that's basically the gist of it. And you can tell that there's a lot of like anger and just feeling like other people are kind of like, you know, that he, he's wasted his time. Because... I think the Shins, like this album, he was recording it in his late 20s. So he had already done a bunch of, you know, just like various you know, typical jobs that everyone kind of does. Like, I think he worked at like a theme park or something as like a, a ticketing person or, you know, stuff like that. Just like all like 
you know, dishwashing jobs or whatever, that right. kind of stuff. So, you know, just feeling directionless. And I, I feel like uh, so many like indie albums that really hit the zeitgeist or tend to be about that because that's the things that, that emotionally connect to like younger people the most. And it's a very like in your 20s kind of feeling. Yeah, I think especially like, yeah, post-aughts music, indie music is, or like post-2000 indie music, it's all about being anxious and restless and having panic attacks. I, I realized what the third Shins album is called Wincing the Night Away, which feels yes. very, like very targeted to to this audience. Yeah, it is kind of like the the kind of like cutesy, wholesome people on social media. Like this album really honestly fits with that pretty well. Like, but it, it's funny when you're bringing up like the subject matter, because like I the lyrics never stuck with me. I'm reading them now for the first time and learning what these songs are about. But in a way there is like an intent that gets through because caring is creepy and know your onion do feel more anxious and do feel more unresolved in a way. Well, I think that's the thing. I think there's a kind of a failure of the lyrics because there's very wordy things that he's trying to sing and it comes off a little awkward Mm -hmm. and you don't really, it just kind of glosses over you. So I think like analyzing the lyrics too much can kind of make you miss the overall picture. Well, I'm just not a lyrics person in general. (laughs) Yeah. I just wanted to look at them because I do think that there was a lot of effort like put into them Mm -hmm. and it's not like, it's a bit surreal or whatever, but it's, it's like, trying to talk about like you know love and and that kind of stuff but also this sentiment of of being restless or whatever which i i think i find more interesting than the ones about love because they just seem like about gross and codependent gross codependence and like the the even the title caring is creepy kind of suggests that right you can already with even if you don't know anything even if you're not really listening to the lyrics you can kind of get that this is what it's about you know yeah exactly it just it feels it's what i would have expected out of a sub pop release at the time Whereas like one by one all day, I think when I compare the band to R.E.M., this is the song I'm thinking about Mm. is one by one all day with like the gentle guitar arpeggios and like um, sort of breezy shifts. Um, I think this song is a minute too long. Oh, yeah. the thing that sticks with me is the section where he says again this is super wordy so it's like it'd be hard to cover these songs um right which i think is probably works against them uh he says this is he's like i can't sing it of being condescending and then he says all these squawking birds won't quit building nothing laying bricks and those are the lyrics that stick in my hand where he says building nothing uh mm-hmm. what well, goes back to building nothing out of something the modest mouse uh right yeah but it, it's also <laughs> this sense of like i i guarantee he's talking about people in his social group who who he doesn't like who are just like you know into themselves but they're not doing anything of meaning <laughs> which uh, i i think there's a little bit more uh uh anger and stuff in these lyrics than you would think initially um that's the line that really hits me and that's also like the part of the song where it kind of breaks down and um 
kind of gets to the the last bridge sort of chorus part of the song. So I I mean I feel like that's the the best part. But yeah, I I this is a good song. It has that kind of interesting swirling organ texture. I think the songwriting, I I don't know. I just generally like the songwriting style. And I think this is one of the best examples of that on the album. Yeah. For me, this is, I think a good example of what gives me a hard time. Um, There's especially like the, um, the, there's a transition from the chorus to the verse. That's like seven chords in a row that don't follow logically. Um, it completely throws me. And again, like, I think it's like conceptually and like analytically, I think it's a really cool thing to do in this genre. It's not something I enjoy listening to. <laughs> well, the thing that I like about it is there are oftentimes there's like parts where he lands on something that I think is a little corny, like a musical line mm-hmm. um, that I don't really like, but then it never stays on it for very long. This is so. true. If, you're, if there's ever a part you don't like, you know, you just, it's like Texas weather. You just wait five seconds. It'll change on you. Yeah, exactly. So I like <laughs> that part of this. Well, good example. One, one by one all day. It begins with this. It's a like, honestly, the second track on shoots too narrow is very similar. It kind of has this like country kind of, ish sound it's like a little more plotting and mid-tempo uh but then it immediately changes into something else where he's the line is i smell the engine grease and the mint the wind is blending another like lyric where i'm like okay i'm sure that means something but i'm not getting much from that um the overall sense that I got from a lot of Shin's lyrics is just like, oh, this is wordy. Like, this is somebody who's like, I read books, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and I, maybe that's not fair, but like, it's just like the imagery. I like thing. I like images that are more concrete. Probably a, a good example of the kind of lyrics that I think are very effective are like uh, Bill Callahan, Smog's lyrics. Yeah. Like, his lyrics are like cut to the bone. He says what he means. But these are a little <laughs> bit too... They're not like surreal like the yankee hotel foxtrot lyrics like but they are very abstracted and very like i read books kind of thing and it just it never quite works for me um what i think they're getting at and it's something that we'll talk about a lot more when we talk about interpol is you know using the words for their sounds more than their meaning um God. it sounds like he's we're not going to talk about interpol lyrics here because that's a whole other rant no that's going to be a whole thing but i think a part of what works in those songs isn't what the lyrics are as like contents of meaning but as cadences and sounds within a song mm-hmm. um and i think there's bits and pieces of that you know like there's there's the cadence of my grandpa said with eyes closed uh, and the song is like, oh, this that feels good, whether I care what you're getting at or not. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a bit of that, like putting in syllables to extend the melody line rather than because you need to say it. That's true. He says, oh, inverted world in the song, which I didn't even realize because he says it, oh, inverted world. Like he says it in a, in a yeah. weird way that I didn't even realize that the, the the name of the album came from a song. Yeah, the melodies don't feel planned out around the words. Like it feels like more like the melody was there and he's kind of trying to force the words into it. Yeah. Um, which which speaking of the, the I've, for me, the best part of this song is where when he sings Oh, Inverted World, there's a like it's kind of like a vibraphone sound. It's kind of going back to the 60s thing. It goes 
do 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 or something like that right and, that, yeah. and that's like probably the catchiest bit of the song which is why i think looking at the lyrics too much can kind of ruin like the overall like to some extent maybe you don't need to pay attention to the lyrics because i think the music kind of gets it across if that makes sense yeah i never paid attention to them and i grew up fine <laughs> But yeah, I don't have much else to say to the song. Um, it, it's another example of a song where there's where it like, it starts off something thinking I'm not going to like it that much. And then it kind of turns into something I like a little bit more, which is, I don't know. I just like that kind of songwriting. I, I know you don't, but. <laughs> but that doesn't mean it's not valid. It's, 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 again, it's a personal thing. Yeah. I also my, like My those, brain doesn't accept it. I like those kinks <laughs> albums that have similar chord changes everywhere. So, and I, I mean, it's just kind of like an art that even a lot of indie, it, like indie artists, I don't see indie artists now doing this kind of songwriting, which is what makes it kind of sound weird and unique, uh, probably more so than anything else uh, about it. Literally, the only person I can think of doing it right now is like Speed, is like Sadie's band, uh, Speedy, Speedy Ortiz, because it's the same thing. Of like, there's like a dozen chords in this verse. <laughs> what are we doing? The next song we should get to is called The Weird Divide. And this is one of my favorite songs on the album. I feel like you would probably like this song, but I don't. Uh, it has an organ. It's like and he's singing in more whispered vocals. He's it like, sounds like Beach Boys um, kind of aesthetic. Yes. Um, there's a there's like a harmony i think i think it's in this song that sounds exactly like the harmony from wonderful the beach Boys song where the guys yeah or something like that um god i was listening to smiley smile the other day that album rules yeah okay i I think it's fine you know i think it's it's one of those songs that's more interesting to me aesthetically than like melodically Mm. what has a nice like it's one of the few that uses a drum machine and Mm -hmm. it has like based around an organ and it's more kind of chill feeling the drum machine even specifically feels like one of those old like hammond organ drum machine yeah patterns like it might be like one of those patterns explicitly but it's it's aesthetically distinct which is something that you know wakes me up and pays attention on this album i think this song is kind of actually why i like this album more than shoots too narrow which objectively sounds much better Mm -hmm. um and I mean, these albums are about equal in terms of songwriting and everything else. I think Shoots to Narrow has like slightly, a few slightly better songs, but um, you can really tell when they're trying to do a 60s throwback thing on it because yeah. they have actual means to do it. Whereas this is a little bit more like, I'm just trying to throw stuff together. And so it sounds a little bit more unique and not quite like anything else. Like, even though this is like 60s style songwriting, it doesn't quite sound like anything else. No, I mean, I think the aesthetic of this album, I think specifically because of like that weird mix of digital recording and amateur mixing is very kind of unique to itself. And it's an aesthetic that I really 
on its own level, I actually enjoy quite a bit. Yeah. It's very dry. The, oh, yeah, it's true. The title of this weird divide, this song kind of sounds a little bit weirder than the other one. So it, I don't know, it works in just in terms of that. It's a little, it's an unexpected vibe compared to like some of the other songs in the album, which are a little bit more mid-tempo plotting, you know. There, there's a lot of songs on here. Like I listened to this album like several, several times. There's a lot of songs on here I cannot remember. Yeah. Um, and The Weird Divide is not one of them. Yeah, especially in the second half. I feel like the second half yeah. is less strong. So let's get to my favorite song on the album, which is called Know Your Onion. Uh, apparently, this is based off of a phrase his mom used to say, which is basically just like, you know, know what you're going to do. And this is the what the fuck am I doing with my life song. Right. The most explicitly. And yeah, I can read the lyrics, but it says, shut out, pimpled and angry. I quietly tied all my guts into knots. Gave up on trying to make them. I figured I'd take them too long to look up and besides. And then the cl- the the chorus is, uh, it was undeniably clear to me. I don't know why. When every other part of life seemed locked behind shutters, I knew what worthless dregs we all were then. Yeah. I talked about this. There's a Guided by Voices song called Dusted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which the lyrics are very much about being stu- a stupid kid and being directionless and i feel like this song is a good lyrical match to that song uh he talks about finding his favorite records in a mall and then his friends saying uh at the bus stop making fun of him for just being kind of withdrawn and him just being like well i'm better than you fuckers (laughs) that is basically the sentiment of the song talk about music with you because these are two bands i've never thought about i never think about lyrically um and i love guided by voices and like absolutely i can see the through line here but it's never something i would come to on my own because like dusted is one of the most the lyrically best guided by voices i would agree with that you know that and like you know drinker's promise or something like drinker's peace yeah drinker's peace yeah um what i i think know your onion has a really good central hook you know, mm. it's got that bouncy bass line. Um, this is a very 60s garage rock type song. Like when I first this heard is, it, that this is, is kinksy as hell. Yeah. Sure. When I first heard it, that's instantly what I thought. I was like, this is 60s throwback. It has like a descending guitar riff, like boop, 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 yeah. boop. And then there's like a, there's like boom, 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 which is like a very kind of 60s backing kind of in the, in the, in the back. And then it has a very like clear, I don't know, this is a good example of, like I think the the melody and and fitting the melody around all the chord changes is, is probably the the strongest point of the shins, uh, like his melody writing. There's a sort of like dancing around each other that all the instruments are doing, where it feels like balls in a lottery machine or something. Like they're all kind of bouncing off each other, uh, in a cool kind of slippery way. I think where Know Your Onion is one of those songs where like there's a strong central hook I love, and then I can't follow it after it starts going elsewhere. Um, Mm. 
But there's a, there's a little bit of a bubblegum pop thing though, because it goes, it kind of like the way it resolves, it goes. You know, it has this kind of resolution that's almost a little like like bubblegum or simple or, or campy or it's whatever. It's a 60s version of like something I think Got It My Voices also does where they'll like pack the hooks of four or five different songs into one song. Yeah, totally. But yeah, I, I like the contrast between the kind of bubblegumming so- sounding song and the lyrics, which is just like, I'm better than you fucker, <laughs> <laughs> which is what what I get out of it. Maybe I'm, <sighs> there's actually a video for this too, where he's like, James Mercer is like working in an office. Uh, one of the band members gets their shit locked in the, in the car and is like, you know, so it's it's like a kind of a frustration song. So I like the combo of that and the bubblegum pop. Uh, I think this is the most successful song on the album to me. I, think, I love um, the song, but I think just one song later. I think is maybe a little more successful. But I, I you know, again, this isn't one of my favorites, but I think this is one of the most well crafted songs. Mm-hmm. Like this, it's another one of those things where it's like there's so much about this band that I appreciate without necessarily being able to engage with. But like this song is kind of a marvel to analyze for me. Yeah, um, because it's there's like an interlocking quality to the different sections that I mean, it's impressive. It's an impressive kind of, you know, display of songwriting. I, it's only a two and a half minute song. It's uh, perfect. I think this song <laughs> is the perfect length. It is exactly as long as it should be. Yeah, it, it crams a lot in there. It's very cool. Yeah, I agree. I love the song. I mean, it's a good example of like we talk about like twee indie stuff. The thing with this is like. Again, a, a lot of music, I think even in the 2000s, would become more focused on vibe. I, I, Animal Collective is the perfect like vibe band, right. I, I would say. Although they didn't get big until they had a couple pop songs out. That's true. But this is like an example of like, this isn't really about vibe. Like, I don't, I don't know. No, there's not about vibe even a little bit. Yeah, there's too much going on in it musically for it to really be a vibe or whatever. So maybe at some point we'll get a, a vibe backlash because I'm in a sort of vibe-free mode right now. So, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there, there's something to be said about, it's like the Olympics. There's something to be said about watching somebody who is very good at their craft doing it well especially when they're in a mcdonald's commercial during the olympics especially especially in a mcdonald's commercial yeah um and know your onion feels like that to me it's I, it's funny on spotify it has fewer plays than girl inform me which i don't understand there's a lot of weird uh mechanisms that go into like deciding you know whether things get picked up but i, I think girl inform me is like Maybe it's just people know what it is or it's people aren't as in touch with the kind of bubblegum 60s pop now. It's not like something that is cool to imitate or part of the zeitgeist. I I was going to say the Beach Boys comparisons apparently were made a lot at the time. There was like an interview with like a, a zine or like a local paper where someone said, oh, people say you sound like the Beach Boys. And they're like, yeah, I guess. Um <laughs> But I, I think it comes from some of those like interest in like vocal harmonies and things like that. So let's move on to the next song. Oh yeah, we're we're talking about a girl inform me. Um, this is a, a first example of like, uh, oh girl, you're so cool or whatever, you know. But then there's also a, an element of like, oh, you might actually be terrible for me, but I'm gonna get involved anyway. <laughs> um, <laughs> sentiment to it uh yeah yeah it's that smith's influence the 
your your clever eyes could easily disguise some backward purpose. I think that's the most interesting line to me. That just sounds condescending to me. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it it is a little condescending, and I think he would eventually break up with, <laughs> like, kissing the lipless. The first song on like. Uh, their next album is the the most like emo song about somebody he's just broken up with. So I have a feeling it's about the same person. Right. <laughs> but yeah, and then there's this uh, a section where it kind of breaks down and he kind of repeats. He's like, you know, girl, you kind of distract me from this stupid casual stuff. Like, what's this morning paper got to say of and which brand of coffee to make and stuff like that. And it's like, okay, that's an okay lyric, but it's kind of catchy the way it repeats over and over again at the end. And I think that's kind of the the catchiest bit of the song but this is another just twisty like complicated uh lots of chord changes kind of song yeah this is one of those songs that slid slides just right out of my head i think the opening line is catchy where he says yeah, the you know, girl in for me i think that's maybe why the song is because you like the title is right at the beginning so yeah. <laughs> i don't know maybe that's why it's popular on spotify <laughs> it's it's right there for you For this town, all in my mouth. Only I don't know how they got out here. Turn me back into the bed. I was when we met. I was happier then with no mindset. And if you turn. Okay, let's go to new slang. Let's go to the source of, like, everything about this band really centers around this. This was the height of this band's acclaim, and it's also, like, the first song they did. so weird. And I'm not, I've never really been sure what it is about this song that seems to appeal to people. I guess there is part of that subject matter that's in Know Your Onion about just being restless and kind of disappointed. I remember reading an interview that was talking about the album by Granddaddy, um, The Sophomore Slump. Software slump. Oh, the software slump. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, that was the pun. Yeah, that's the pun. It came out in 2000. It was saying like how it was the sound of January 1st, 2000. Like it was the sound of, oh, the millennium is actually just a fucking disappointment. You know, like this isn't the end of history. We're not in the high tech universe. You know, life goes on and (laughs) this decade is about to be really sucky. Right. And I think new slang is the sound of that. Like just (laughs) disappointment. It has a bit of that. To me, it feels like, oh, Death Cab for Cutie got big when I Will Follow You Into the Dark came out. Mm-hmm. I mean, that that's a more obvious song, but I feel like people will always want a pensive acoustic track. Mm-hmm. And this song has like, it's a pensive acoustic track that's not boring, that has a little more going on. Mm-hmm. So it helps like stick out from your uh, typical kind of balladry. I have a theory also that the opening part, the... 
Yeah. That is like part of the beginning of a decade of, Ayo, you know, like that, <laughs> yeah. the arcade fire wake up kind of thing where it's mm-hmm. like the melody line is carried in these ooze. Or, that's like the sound of advertisement indie. Oh, <laughs> no. And this was the song that was in advertisements. It's so. true. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you're probably right to some degree i honestly think it's that more than any part of the song for me i kind of like that he's way more low-key it doesn't sound like labored no it sounds kind of like pensive and and normal like there's something a lot more normal about him here Mm -hmm. well speaking of which this is from an old interview from i don't know when this uh travel down under tnt i don't know what that is but anyway it says what is new slang about? He says, new slang is about the Saturn returns part of my life. I don't know what that oh, means. It's when you turn 30, I think. Oh, uh, okay. I wrote it just after that. It's about the time of my life, about getting out of Albuquerque and leaving everything behind. Gold teeth and a curse for this town. I guess that's like gold teeth being this discovery that I could write songs and this was my chance in this talent that I discovered. So it's another example of like, fuck you, I'm out of here. <laughs> <laughs> Which is really kind of the sentiment underlying it's somewhat insufferable yeah i mean it's it's kind of a, it's it's the indie version of the kanye west sentiments um i was in this place that i felt depressed about i feel like i couldn't relate to the people i'd been hanging out with i had become a hermit making a record and recording and lost interest in the binging and partying and shit i would indulge in things and it wouldn't be much fun and then they say new slang in the film garden state did some big things for you do you see the result of this film and the soundtrack relatively quickly and he said yeah He's like, it was like a damn movie advertisement for the shins. It was great. I, I read another article that said he was, he felt very weird and self-conscious like because he saw the movie premiere and the song coming up and he like slinked down in his seat like, um, I mean, uh, the Natalie Portman, I mean, first of all, her character is the definition of like the magical girl trope. Oh, if we're talking about the movie, I hate Garden State. I think it's a terrible movie. Yeah, I still haven't seen it, but like her character magical pixie dream girl that's what it's called manic pixie dream girl sorry but yeah like i guess i can see in the zeitgeist of the time how you would want something that is like softer and more sincere but how can you like just if anyone like put a fucking earphones on me and it's like listen to this song it's gonna change your life it's just the definition of like i hate to use the word but cringe it's pretty cringe that whole movie is yeah absolutely like all the characters are terrible and they're all insufferable little precious fucks that i would hate to be around like that is the movie that that is where tinder queers come from (laughs) you know (laughs) yeah Oh, the other line from this song that I feel like just says what it is. One of the few times where he says, he says, I'm looking in on the good life I might be doomed never to find. So it is a very like turning 30 sentiment, which I could not relate to at all. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So do you have anything else to say about new slang before we move on? Absolutely not. Nope. It's like ranked extremely highly on Rate Your Music like as a single. <laughs> it's just like the one thing that is conceded about this band is this song is, is which again is weird to me because it's like not even my favorite song on this album. No. Whatever. It has a nice sound, I guess. So immediately we go after to another one of the 60s pop. This one has kind of like a, a Bell and Sebastian-y kind of vibe. Is it like a harmonica or something? There's a jangly guitar reverbed guitar sound that sounds a little it's a nostalgic sounding song i would say do you agree with that the celibate life 
I mean, it's nostalgic in the way that a lot of the album songs are sound. Yeah. Nostalgic. It's another one like Girl Inform Me where it feels, it kind of goes in one ear and out the other. If we're talking about all vibes, a lot of the worst songs on this album for me are just a vibe with a lot of chords under and underneath. Um, and this is kind of one of those. Yeah, I don't know. There's uh, something a little bit more wistful, like the wistfulness of the mood. There's some examples of this, of like talking about his life, not really doing much and kind of becoming a hermit and all that kind of stuff. Um, this also has the kind of bubblegum thing that No Your Onion does where there's a part where he's like, just the end of like a phrase. It has that kind of like 60s, like bubblegum way of resolving the melody, uh, which is catchy, but it can be annoying if that's not what you like. But yeah, I, I, I kind of like the mood. It has that like wistful, like maybe autumnal sound. It's okay. It's not one of the better songs in the album, but it's fine. The next song, Girl on the Wing, is the one I don't like because I just think the production is shit on this song. So for me, it's hard for me to tell the difference between the production on any of these songs. They all feel of a point. What I like about Girl on the Wing is it's got that fucking refrain of like the before we take this ride and let it slide refrain where it's just... Oh, yeah. I mean, that part is fine. It's a four to a one over and over again it's simple my mind can hold on to it it works for me okay fair enough it works for me The opening section is what I don't like. Oh, yeah. I don't think it starts very well at all. But, you know, about a minute in, it, it hits a groove that it kind of holds on to for a while. There's this kind of like herky-jerky rhythm, which I, I just never like herky-jerky rhythm. It goes, burp, 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 and there's this like burp, 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 <laughs> uh, synth line, but it's like not a very good synth sound, and it's not mixed very well. No, it, it's a weird synth I'm a post-punk kid. I like a herky-jerky rhythm, but they don't really have the confidence to pull it off. Yeah, which is weird because I listen to some flake music stuff, and it's not like the other members are bad musicians. I just think it's the way that they recorded it. Mm-hmm. I think it's so song first that like that defining like musical choices kind of makes it more difficult. But yeah, it does have a breakdown in a more like the part that you were talking about. Again, an example of like, if you don't like a part of the song, it'll change to something else. The Before we take this ride and let it slide in the cracks where fall and winter collide, I surrender my gall in a song of modern love. I don't know how to like sincerely take that. I guess it is sincere because he said it's sincere, but these are examples of like, meh, I don't, <laughs> I don't really connect with this. Because there's an element of the lyrics where it doesn't sound romantic. It just sounds kind of weird and codependent to me. Uh, I mean, so many of these lyrics remind me of like, poets speak so i i went to grad school for poetry and there's some poets who like insist on everything they write even like text messages or emails being in this overly convoluted like impressionistic language i hate that fucking bullshit i hate it so i much. hate it so much it's so insufferable and all of these lyrics feel like that it's like you're trying to say something pretty normal mm. but you're doing it in the most like fey and foppish way you can i mean it's like the i'm the 
poetic kid. I read books. Right. But you're you're such a nerd. You're just coming off <laughs> as such a nerd. Like I, I feel kind of embarrassed reading some of it. Yeah, it is a little embarrassing. So the next song is called Your Algebra, and it's like a weird, it just has like a very lo-fi recorded like acoustic song with some harmony, and it's just basically one melodic line and then some... It feels like an old like guided by voices interlude. Yeah, which is fine like where it is on the album because this album is already hitting too many like mid-tempo songs that sound like each other. Mm-hmm. So it's probably at a good place in the album. It's something that because it's in a minor key, like you would put towards the end, like, okay, we're starting to wrap this up. But it is something that I like. This song and Weird Divide, um, there's nothing kind of like those songs on Shoots Too Narrow, so... They kind of make it feel a little bit more like a, a DIY home-crafted experience, I guess. So I, I like that aspect of it. Yeah. No, I think it's kind of cool. I, again, any like differentiation in tone on this album like sticks in my head. Uh, and then pressed in the book, we're back to like another herky-jerky beginning that sounds like, you know, other stuff. It begins with just like a burr, 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 like kind of just like one two three and it just like everything is that at the beginning but then of course there's a second section that's like a softer acoustic section that seems and it kind of does that musical thing where like here's the bullshit and then here's me saying the truth kind of (laughs) do you know what i mean like it kind of has that musical effect like here's this like wistful internal truth and here's the like noisy external world kind of thing but yeah very like words and guitar by slater kenny yeah but the herky-jerky rhythm i don't know it's it reads to me as a very like this album is running out of steam song so i really like preston a book i feel like it's one of the more success successful like kinks pastiches you know it's worth saying my favorite kinks album is like lola is lola power man Mm -hmm. and this feels like it kind of harkens to that level of power pop for me And it's funny because like I totally get being annoyed by the kind of rhythmic. There's something kind of corny and Beatlesy about that rhythm. Yeah, I just uh, it's too pat and like I don't know, it's too just stiff for me. I I get that. I feel like the hook underpinning it is really successful for me. If the rest of the instruments were doing something different and the vocal hook was still doing that rhythm, I think it would work better. Mm -hmm. But as it stands, like where it's just like it's nailing it, it nails it down too hard. But melodically, it still really works for me. I will admit I like the section where it goes more acoustic and he says, as we walk and make plans in the dark or make haste with ideas that can't help but creep good people out. I, I don't really like that lyric, but it oh yeah, it, it works okay for you know what the shins are, I guess. But yeah, I, I like that section. Lyrically, almost none of this works. But, like, but I think the other thing is I feel like, and maybe it's because it's sort of pat, but I think like this is an example of the two contrasting sections fitting together better. Mm in a way that like in other songs it feels almost random i will admit there's enough of a musical contrast because it goes a little more acoustic so that it probably makes it a little bit more memorable when that section hits it's, it's not like my favorite on the album 
but I think it's definitely one of the more memorable songs for me. The acoustic part also kind of gives like a, this album is starting to wrap up and right. then run out of steam. Uh, I was I was surprised there was a song after this. Yeah. Well, and the song after this is one of the best songs on the album. It is. It's pretty good. Yeah. This is the one song that he said he felt like he did a good job recording on this album. Uh, this was the, the most recent interview. He said, um, if New Slang is one of the most famous songs from O Inverted World, what is your personal favorite? He says, I think the past and pending is my favorite. I just feel like it's, I don't know, lyrically really strong. Uh, uh, maybe. No, it's not. And it's got an interesting melody and some interesting chord changes. It works probably more than the other songs do. I do think that's true. The chord changes work more naturally. Absolutely. And it also has that, it has a nice like French horn solo. It really fits with the song. It's a good choice for arrangement. And it also has the new slang thing where he's not trying to sing in strained, high-pitched voice. He's singing at a more like casual, natural, mm -hmm. lower key, which helps with, this is my cliche about album enders, but we're closing the curtains <laughs> on this world that you've been in for, you know, a half an hour or whatever. But it is, it's, it's emblematic of that album construction. And I do think like, yeah, along with what you're saying, this feels intentionally constructed in a way that you know, some of the other chord progressions, they feel like, you know, when somebody's trying to figure out a song and they just keep playing like random chords one after another, some of the other songs have that kind of vibe to me. Like they're just kind of being thrown in. Whereas this, like it's unconventional, but it feels intentional. It feels like the progression is him trying to follow a line. And there's like a a mood to this song. You know, if we're talking about the other songs in terms of like vibes and there are definitely vibes, this one feels moody mm -hmm. uh, and almost atmospheric in a way that most of the album doesn't. Yes. The French horn line really helps that. It does. It, like having that additional texture really brings something to it. I mean, this is an example of why I think he's an effective songwriter. He does tend to repeat lines like a lot to kind of, you know, repetition legitimizes as... <laughs> Adam Neely of the YouTube constantly yeah. says it. But he says, lose yourself in lines dissecting love like over and over and over again, sort of as it fades out. And that kind of like goes with his lyrical purpose and intent of I'm spending all this energy trying to like express the inexpressible with about love. And I don't know whether he's doing it effectively or not, but that is kind of the purpose of a lot of the music so it kind of makes sense looking at the lyrics last night for some reason that line kept coming up in my head it's like oh okay i guess this is what he's doing like this is his intention at the very least for me i think it's a good example of how words that don't work on a page can be made to work with either repetition or melody mm -hmm. or both i think there are some lines and that's one of them that if i were to just read it in like a poem i'd be like that's bullshit but in the sort of context of the song and repeated the way he does, it gets a, it doesn't feel as cold as it reads. Mm -hmm. So he can, he pulls it off. It's pretty cool. I think <laughs> music is cool. Yeah. Music is cool sometimes. <laughs> as someone sets light to the first fire of autumn, we settle down to Candle 
Well, to wrap this all up, we'll look at the Pitchfork review and we'll talk about... Our rankings? <laughs> ranking. But I want to read... This is something that he wrote just last year when there was a 20th anniversary release for O Inverted World. This is uh, James Mercer's statement. He says, This record gave me the life that I never really dreamed I would have. It opened me up to the whole world and gave me validation. It's also something that stands as a bit of a pinnacle for our band. You release that first record and it's so well embraced, but you're always trying to get that magic back, I think. We've done well, certainly, but the fervor that happened around Owenferted World, we never quite reached again. It's a special moment when you're a new band and you've got what was apparently kind of a new sound. This record symbolized a very special moment in my life, a watershed moment for sure. I think that hits at so many of like the archetypes of like indie music in the 2000s. There were so many artists that either their first album or like their second album, they got a bunch of acclaim. And, you know, it was kind of the engine that fueled them for the rest of their careers, but Mm -hmm. uh, it might've been diminishing returns for them after a certain point. And it also kind of goes to the unexpected DIY aspect of like, it's a little touching. I, I have to admit like of, you can tell that this really means something to someone. This isn't somebody who comes from like a super rich upbringing or whatever. Right. You know, there's a little bit more of an aspirational element to it, which I think as indie music turned more into rich kid music, uh, maybe it would lose a little bit of that. But it has a little bit of that, like, you know, 90s Liz Fair guided by voices element of like, this really made me and I never thought that it would, you know. Right. I've reached a level of success I never thought. Like, appreciating the success that you get is kind of neat. And those things are unpredictable, but they happen. Yeah. So yeah, that's Owen Verded World. Uh, Do you want to read a little bit from the Pitchfork review before we... Wrap up. Oh my God. So what I love about this Pitchfork review, it's not quite as like ridiculously conceptual as the rest, but it does one of the Pitchfork standbys, which is that it is primarily about the writer <laughs> for the first half. So this is the first full paragraph of a review of O Inverted World. For the majority of Americans, it's a given. Summer is the best season of the year, or so you'd think judging from the anonymous TV ad men and women who proclaim summer is here, get your insert ice drink here now. Whereas in the winter, they regret to inform us that it's time to brace ourselves with a new Burlington coat. And TV is just an exaggerated reflection of ourselves. The hordes of convertibles making the weekend pilgrimage to the nearest beach are proof enough. Vitamin D overdoses abound. And you might think, man, where are you going? I hope you talk about the band soon. He, no, there's like two more paragraphs of this shit. He talks about how he hates summer. He's like, <laughs> I hate the summer. It's it's so emblematic of this era of Pitchfork. I, it's like, we'll never get to this because it's not really emblematic. But I remember reading a review of a Mogwai album in Filter that was just this girl talking about doing Xanax in her kitchen and never mentions the album once. It's like three paragraphs of doing Xanax in my oh, kitchen. God. And it's just like, Jesus. okay, this is music journalism. <laughs> yeah. This review, by the way, is by, because it doesn't say if you look at no. uh, current, it's by Ryan Kearney is the name of the author. He says also, he says, he's like uh, talking about the summer. He's like, maybe I need to move to the home of Sub Pop where the sun is shy even in the summer. It actually gets pretty sunny. <laughs> By the way, I'm recording this in Seattle, <laughs> right. the home of Sub Pop. I, I just got here yesterday. So this is a really weird and funny coincidence. Is it sunny? Uh, it is actually sunny today. And I'm about to go out to the U District and have a good time. So. Well, eat shit, Pitchfork. <laughs> <laughs> eat shit. It says, for some... 
hailed O Inverted World as the next great entry in a long line of clean and carefree pop albums that strings back to the Beach Boys' early surfing days. Another mention of the Beach Boys. This is what is meant by sunny music, both laid back and upbeat, with crystalline vocals and lyrics that, while sincere, aren't particularly weighty, which means I don't have to listen to the lyrics. Oh, yeah. Yep. But yeah, and then he mentions the band's sun, Sunny Day Real Estate. Sunny Day is, Real Estate, yeah. That's a random pull. Yeah, I think it's just because they were on Sub Pop. Um, oh, yeah, I guess. But yeah, that's the basic. Yeah, because it, it's not because it was Sub Pop per se, because a lot of bands were on Sub Pop yeah. like, in the eight years before that never got anywhere. Like this is, it's a weird like concurrent of events, you know? And it did like set a precedent. You know, this guy talks about his like, the latest in a long line of sunny albums. And there was like, when we talk about interval, we'll talk about the post-punk revival, but there were concurrently like a few other strains of indie music. And one of them was this like warm, sunny pop revival. It's kind of the beginning of the twee. I don't know if this is exactly twee, but it's a little twee. I think now that I've read the lyrics, it feels especially twee. I think sonically it's not as much, but you can see the parallels. Yeah. I think characterizing it as sunny is a little bit, of a misnomer because i think the album is more like bummer i think i get a little (laughs) bit more of a a bummer more bummer than summer you heard it here first yeah it's a little bit more angsty than you would think and i don't know i find the story behind it a little interesting in the way that i find the story behind anything that unexpectedly blows up kind of interesting and it made me see that there is a little more angst uh going on there which i think actually made me appreciate it more I'm not sure where it would rank, but I will say when I started having nostalgia for like listening to indie rock music again, I had not thought about the shins for years. And I came back to this album and I was like, you know what? I kind of like this. It goes contrary to like a lot of what, you know, I was a fan of Radiohead and the Flaming Lips. Those are my two favorite bands and they made the giant productions and crazy arrangements and all this kind of stuff. It kind of runs counter to that, but... I don't know, something about it. I do like it. And there is a little bit of a vibe. I hate using the word vibe. I did it again. There's a little bit of a sensibility to O Inverted World that you don't quite get from their follow-up album. So, yeah. Yeah. So I don't like this album. I would, I would This is ranked number two currently. But I will say when I first heard it ages ago, I completely dismissed it as being like boring, lame pop. And I think now I have like a lot more like respect and admiration for it. Mm -hmm. It's a lot more interesting than I ever gave it credit for. And that's cool. It operated this space in my mind of like, oh, I know what you sound like and I know what you're about and I don't have to listen to you ever again. Um, And well, I probably won't listen to it ever again. (laughs) (laughs) It deserves, I think, a more thorough examination than a normal pop album. Yeah, I think it's deceptively interesting. And it's funny if you look at even a lot of the reviews are very surface (laughs) about what the album Mm -hmm. is. They're not really trying to pick it apart. So it tells you that it did hit a zeitgeist and maybe hasn't stuck around. But I do think there are elements of this that are worth, you know, looking back at and make it more interesting and then people think it is. So we're going to try and rank these albums as we go through on our own personal rankings. And I will say this ranks as a tie for me with Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, which is a cheat. But the thing is like Yankee Hotel Foxtrot is obviously a more kind of critically acclaimed seminal album with more like, I like I am going to break your heart more than anything else on this album. 
But as far as something that I can listen to this album more frequently and just kind of have it on, and I do appreciate the songwriting in the way that I don't really like Jeff Tweedy's songwriting as much. So I'm just putting them as equals with each other uh, because I admit that this band is limited in some ways, but it's worth looking back on. And it's it's something about it really, I think partially just because they were the first uh, band that I saw live, but it really defines that culture of the indies in the 2000s to me. I would recommend anybody and everybody listening to this to go back and check it out because I do think it is weirder and more intricate than it ever got credit for as an album. Like it is, it makes me think of Exile and Guyville in a way where it got like pegged as this one specific thing so much that all these other interesting things about it have been kind of forgotten. Um, anything else to, to say about this album before we... I've said everything. Okay. That's all I have. <laughs> yeah. So the next episode, we're going to talk about Interpol, right? You want to talk about Interpol? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We'll talk about Interpol. My Possibly my favorite band, but also a uh, band whose flaws I am extremely aware of. Another example of a band whose first album got a tremendous amount of hype and then it kind of fell off from there. That's Interpol's fault. That's not that's not the public's fault. <laughs> but I think it'll be interesting because it was another it was an album that I think is emblematic of an important scene and is something that got forgotten. Mm-hmm. Like Pitchfork remembers it, but nobody else I know does. Well, it's interesting because I looked on Rate Your Music and uh, apparently Turn On The Bright Lights is still a very well-loved album, which surprises me. But well, Rate Your Music is all people like our age and older. Well, yeah, but there are also, there's a culture of like 4chan kids and people who follow like Anthony Fantano, who they've Oof. canonized like very particular albums from this era and not other ones. So I think they would not focus on O Inverted World, but turn on the bright lights as an example of an album that would get thrown on there, I think. And that's my impression. But we can talk about it more next episode. Yeah, it's definitely going to be another like an album of conflicts and contradictions, but I think it'll be fun. (laughs) Yeah. And like these first four episodes we're doing our albums focusing on that. And then we're probably going to do something different for the fifth episode just so we can break the monotony of, of going in this, but we'll talk about it later. But anyway, thank you so much for listening to the Kitchfork podcast. And I might also work on, uh, especially as we do more episodes, I might like have a show email where you can email Ooh. us questions or something like that. Oh, mailbag would be fun. Just stay tuned for more information about that as we go along. But yeah, I've been your co-host, Liz Ryerson. And I'm your other co-host, Max Cohen. And thank you for listening. Have a very indie-tastic day. (laughs) And a very inverted world to you, too. (laughs) Uh. Oh, uh, do you have the uh, Garden State soundtrack? That's supposed to be indie-tastic. Blind to the last curse of the fair Pistols and countless eyes Trailers and blood betrayed Oh